Welcome to the Layer 8 Podcast, Season 2. This season, we'll again hear from the experts. These experts are social engineers and open source intelligence investigators. Sometimes, they'll tell us stories about their experiences, and sometimes, we'll have some questions for them. We hope you'll enjoy them. For this episode, we welcome Michelle Stewart of JAG Investigations. Michelle is an experienced investigator who does both OSINT and social engineering every day and offers training of her techniques. She presented at the Layer 8 conference in 2020 and in this episode talks about what it takes to talk your way into a Super Bowl party as well as the evolution of OSINT tools. Let's hear from Michelle. Welcome to the episode, Michelle. Uh, can you tell us a few things about yourself, who you are, where you are, what you do, and maybe even about your company? All right. Well, my name is Michelle Stewart, and I am the founder of JAG Investigations. And I have been in investigations. I hate to say how long because it ages you immediately, but I've been doing investigations for 30 years. And when I started my career, it was back in the days, if you remember, when a lot of the savings and loans were going into receivership. Uh, we had a lot of financial crime. We had a lot of handshake deals. And um, so the first 10 years of my career was economic fraud, financial fraud investigations. Uh, the particular company that I was associated with a lot of times would secure a financial institution. Um, and then the portfolios would come over to me. I would assess the portfolio to find out, you know, the capability of, of accessing money. And so back in those days, and I don't know how long you've been around, Patrick, but back in those days, almost everything was done by pretext. We didn't have a lot of the data systems available to the, well, you know, to us like we have now. We definitely didn't have the internet as it is now today. And so it became a very skilled way of getting information from people that you needed to then go a little bit further and ask somebody else information. So it was always like, if you remember the days of um, daisy chaining, right? The daisy chaining phone calls. And when you used to be able to get a phone card and you'd call a 1-800 number and then I would call a hospital and then I would act like I was a patient and I needed them to dial out so I could hit someone's house and caller ID would show that it was a hospital. And so for those 10 years was a lot of that. And um, and we kind of had a free roam, you know, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act hadn't existed yet. Um, pretext, pretense wasn't really looked at negatively like it is a lot of times now. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to be careful about when we're doing our social engineering and our pretexting. States have different laws than federal laws. And um, so about 20 years ago, uh, you know, the internet started coming around for us to start utilizing. And, and it's been around a lot longer than 20 years. But I remember 20 years ago, that's when we started looking at the capability of doing some data scraping and, and utilizing it as a source. So I went into open source and I started training it. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years is primarily about 80% training of open source techniques and 20% casework. So I am located in Arizona beautiful sunny Arizona. I know a lot of people are dealing with snow and rain and I think it's supposed to be 90 to 95 this week. Well, that's about it, I guess, for my background. Well, my background really comes to, and I have to be honest, I do a lot of law enforcement training, um, corporational training, executive protection training, asset protection type of stuff. So let's um, go ahead and show our age a little bit now. <laughs> 
Give me the um, get off my lawn answer to this thing. What is something that people doing investigations today would not believe that you had to do back when you started? What What is something that is like so much easier today that you didn't have it so easy back when you started? Oh my gosh, two things. Cold directories. If anybody remembers cold directories, having those big, big, uh, I always called them box books. And it was everybody's phone numbers you could go through. You know, sometimes we even had to go to the library to access a cold directory, depending where you were. And the second thing is, oh my gosh, the amount of time I spent in the bottom of Superior Court going through, uh, you know, fish, you know, the, the, the microfilms and the big levers that you had to sit there and turn so the newspapers would go across the screen. And, you know, those things, I don't, I kind of miss it in some ways. It was kind of that good old fashioned, you know, digging. And, but today everything's kind of at our fingertips. I have a feeling there are probably some listeners that have no idea what that thing is that you just referred to. They might have seen it in some movies where there's investigations and you just kind of see them scrolling through what looks like a computer screen. And sometimes it even looks like they're they're looking at negatives. But yeah, that's that's how we used to have to look for things in newspapers or old books is on that those microfiche things in, in libraries. Oh, and you had to concentrate because now all you got to do is a control F or a command F and look for a keyword. Back then, you actually had to read everything so you didn't miss, you know, that little piece of nugget that you were looking for. Right. Today, you can just search for something and Google or some other search engine will say, here it is, where back yeah. then you were literally reading those articles word for word and trying to print them out and, and find the information that way. Well, and the good thing about today, too, the OSINT community, especially, is so sharing. And, you know, if there's something that you don't know how to find or you don't even know the technique behind it, all you got to do is throw it out there, especially on Twitter. And, you know, and that's what the really cool thing about, I think, what we could do now today compared to what it used to be, because it wasn't where I could call, hey, Patrick, you know, I'm going to be down in Superior Court's basement looking through this stuff. You know, do you want to help? And um, or what should I do? A lot of people didn't have, like you said, that experience in today's world. They don't even know it. My son didn't even know what a typewriter was. You know, I remember when he was probably about 10 and we were at a garage sale and he saw it. He had no clue to what it was. And I was like, wow, that is how different our lives really are. What would you say having that type of experience from before the internet days has done for your your own strategy and your own methodology for being able to do investigations? Honestly, talking to people. And, you know, those first 10 years, you really had to figure out people's behavioralisms. And, you know, there's there's little things like when I train my classes, I always say there's three emotions that normally people can be manipulated by. And the first and foremost, you see it throughout terrorism, right? The very number one emotion that anybody in this world, even you, even I, can be manipulated on is fear, right? Um, you go after my family, it's a whole new ball game for me. Um, you see what's happening in the world today. I think it's very fear driven. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, things that are happening. And, and so fear is a major, uh, major emotion. The second one is love and compassion. And the third is greed and curiosity. So by learning those three emotions, it, it taught me in those first 10 years how to talk to people, how to get people to help me. I remember one of my things, because obviously now that we're aging, our voices are aging. But 
when I first came into it, I had that, you know, that simple, cute little, you know, 20 year old voice, 25 year old voice. And, you know, you could play that you and, and you would have people um, help you because primarily people want to help people. Right. And that's honestly true. People want to help people. And so it was learning how to manipulate that type of behavior from me, how I knew I could utilize my voice um, to get people to give me information. And so here we are now. Um, and we laugh about it because there's some of the things that, you know, I still carry today that allows us to get things or get into places that we normally shouldn't maybe be getting into. And and so it that carried over. It's just the way to work with people. One of the things that I often like to ask people is what advice would you have for somebody just starting out in order to use those three emotions to, to quickly build rapport? What might be some thing that you would want them to, to work on just starting out in the industry? Build confidence. If you act like you know something or you act like you deserve to be there or that you um, are the person who should be in the building or in a situation, a conversation, um, you have to learn that confidence. And as long as you're super confident, a lot of people never question you. You know, you walk in acting like you belong there. A lot of times people don't like come up and say, hey, what are you doing? Um, I'll, I'll never forget. And I, I was kind of telling you the story and I'll tell you this. This is a funny one of mine. So we're at this conference and there's five of us. And uh, I had already been at the hotel for about two or three days by then. And I kind of noticed the pattern of when people were coming into work, getting off of work. There was a security guard that worked the front door and he tended to leave or between five to five thirty. That was usually when I would see kind of like the changing of the guards. Right. And so this one night, um, the five people that I was with, we wanted to go to the bar. So and this bar was in this particular hotel, not in the open. You know how like some of the hotels, the bars are just in the open and anybody can walk in. This was actually you walk through two doors and you went into a bar. And as we were walking up the steps to get to the bar, there was a guard. And usually there wasn't a guard there on other nights. So we walk up and and um, the guard said, hey, I'm sorry, this is a private Christmas party. And I'm like, oh. And I said, well, who's having a Christmas party? And I immediately start pretexting, right? Because I know how I'm going to use this. And he gives me some company. And uh, I said, oh, that sucks. And I said, well, um, how long do you think the party's going to go on for? And uh, he said, well, I have no idea. You know, I'm getting off here pretty soon. I said, oh, it's good for you. I said, what time is the switching of the guards? And I just keep talking to him and laughing. I'm like, yeah, it really sucks when you have to sit there and listen to people drinking. You can't drink. And I'm just chatting him up. So it was about 20 minutes where he was going to be leaving. And I said, dude, I said, I totally appreciate your job. I said, what's your name? And he gives me his name and let's call him Dave. And I said, I appreciate you. You know, Dave, this is a sucky job. So we walk away and uh, we go sit down and I see the guard change. Dave leaves. Right. So we wait about 10 minutes and I tell everybody that I'm with nobody offer anything. When I get up there, let me talk and let me just do it all. And not because I don't think anybody can do the job that I do. But unless you work with people that you can kind of feed off their personalities and you know that they can run with your you know, storyline and stuff like that without screwing it up, you don't want them speaking. So we go back up there. I'm like, wait, hey, where's Dave? And the guy goes, oh, this is a private party. I go, I know we're part of this party. I said, we just had to go out and take a, you know, a Zoom call kind of thing, a conference call. 
And um, Dave was, he said, no problem. You know, we're going to come right back in. And the guy looked at me and I said, we are the satellite office for this particular company. We had to go take care of an issue. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. And he lets us right in, right? So it's an open bar. So I told the people that I was with, go to the very end of the bar, get to the place where nobody's really going to pay attention to us. Um, most of the activity was at the front of the bar and kind of like where there's a little stage area. And so we're in there, we're just drinking away. Right. And, uh, so all of a sudden this girl gets up on the mic and she said, um, you know, Hey everybody, I hope everybody's having this great time. And we're cheering along with everybody else. And, and she goes, but I need a volunteer to help us sell raffle tickets. And I look at the guys I'm with and I'm like, I'm doing this, man. And they're like, no, Michelle, don't do it. You're going to get us like in trouble. I'm like, nope, I'm doing this. I'm going to go sell raffle tickets. And by now we have started talking to people and I've, I've introduced this as a Houston satellite office for their company. Nobody ever knew who we were. And I'm like, of course you don't. You know, we're analysts. You guys don't even deal with us. And they're like, oh, so I have integrated us now into this party where people are buying us, you know, shots and and we're doing all kinds of fun things. So I go up and I'm like, I'll sell tickets. And I outsold everybody for their own Christmas party. <laughs> I had nothing to do with this company. And by the end of it, we all had fake names. And obviously I was giving fake phone numbers out. And oh my God, it was so much fun. But it's just that, you know, getting in and, and, and that rapport of being confident that you're supposed to be there, being outgoing, being friendly. And, you know, and there's those times, though, Patrick, that you have to act like you're pissed off. Right. It depends on what your situation is and what what the reaction you're trying to get. But that's the biggest thing I would always tell everybody is bring that confidence. And if you screw up, who cares? You walk away or you hang up the phone. Right. You've learned your lesson. You know what to say or not say the next time. But yeah. And, and then it, I did the same thing for an NFL party. But I have to say the guy that I kind of incorporated into it, rolled with it. So there was a, it's when the, the uh, Super Bowl was here in Phoenix and there was a very exclusive party. And two of my girlfriends were like, let's see if we can get in. And of course they call me and I'm like, let's go, let's do this. So we go in and I always tell everybody, this is how I do it. Everybody kind of has, you know, different ways of doing things. But I said, I want to find the weak point. So they had those velvet uh, kind of like chain, you know, fences up and you don't go to your front and you don't go to the back. The back is where a lot of the supplies are coming through. It's going to be heavily guarded. You don't go through the front. I could probably pretext my way through the front, honestly, but I have two other people I'm trying to bring in with me. So that's going to negate that that particular option. So what I do is I look for that weak link where there's one guard. And so I'm walking the pathway of the fence and there's this one area and it's kind of tucked into by this table and there's one guard. Every other, there was three other points of entrance and they had two to three guards. So um, I go walking back with my friends and the guard stopped me. He did a good job. And he's like, hey, you know, this is a private party. And I said, I know that I'm supposed to be in there. And he's like, really? Well, where's your invitation? And I go, well, you won't believe this. And there's a football player and he's on the other side of the um, the gated area. And he's kind of on his phone and he's kind of off by himself. And I start yelling, Tony, Tony. And, you know, he doesn't kind of look around because obviously he's not Tony. And finally he looks at me. I go, Tony, I said, this guy's not letting me in. You didn't leave me 
the invitation, like you said, you were. And he goes, and this guy just went with it. He goes, baby, I have been on the phone trying to get a hold of you for the last hour. And he comes over and he looks at the guard and he goes, she's with me. And he goes, but, you know, honestly, you should leave her on that side. And the guard starts laughing, opens the gate, and me and my friends walk in. And the guy looks at me and he goes, you owe me a beer. I'm like, let's go. But so it was just kind of like, you know, if I failed, I failed. But I just, I was lucky enough where he ran with it and, and helped me out. But it's like that. You just act like, you know, and you act like you should be there. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think that was going to be my next question is how do you have confidence when you have none? How do you learn to have the confidence? And what is really the the role of preparation in that in having confidence? Because it seems as though, at least for that NFL story, you didn't really have much opportunity or time to prepare for how to get in other than, you know, the experience that you had. Uh, but what what is really the the role with uh, being able to adequately prepare, which will then help with the confidence in getting in. You know, a couple of things. I always say you have to have that kind of personality where you can roll with it, right? And um, I could, if like somebody's telling a story, I can jump right in. I can flow with the story. I could create the story, have somebody else jump in. You kind of have to have that personality where you could just, you know, I hate to say it, but lie. You know, you you just it's easy to to fabricate the story to get the confidence um i remember in some of my classes in the beginning i used to have tell them you know call a friend act like the friend was who you were going to be pretexting right and that way you can stumble around as much as you want because you can start over you can you can qualify your story better um you know with me i've i've gotten to the point where i remember this one time i started with a story pretexting an individual and i forgot the name i used right and so then he the guy asked me what's your name and i came up with a totally different name and he goes well wait a minute he goes you just told me your name was you know uh terry and i said well actually my middle name is terry there's three other michelles that work here and so they call me by my middle name here and he's like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And he just went with it, right? So that's what I tell people is if you're not confident, just start by, you know, calling somebody. And even somebody who has experience like myself, or there's a lot of people who social engineer, and, you know, and have them listen to what you're going to say. Because, you know, I'll come back and I'll, I'll you know, be, be that devil's advocate. Okay, well, this is what they're going to come back at you with, right? And you got to be quick. And if they pause, and, and I'll tell them if you pause, that's a dangerous thing. A pause is a dangerous thing because it means you're thinking, right? If you come back with a boom, you know, with a with an answer, even if it's a wrong answer, but you come back with an answer pretty quickly, um, it's a more of a you know smoother type of of uh, pretense. But yeah, just practice. It's it's like a good actor practices. Have you ever done any kind of improvisation lessons? Because it, it sounds as though being able to think that quickly on your feet can really be enhanced with trying some kind of improv. Oh, my gosh. No, I've never given lessons. But when you live with two sarcastic teenage boys that are now in their 20s, that's about all the improv you need. <laughs> Believe me, the lies I told my kids growing up that everything I knew about what they were doing, which I knew a lot because, of course, you have key loggers and you have all kinds of things you could do. But um, no, I never really gave that improv class. You mentioned not having that pause. But how about, do you ever use the awkward silence on the other end where you kind of create the, the pause or the silence waiting 
for the other person to give you information? Is that a, a tool or a technique that you've used in your investigations? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's kind of like I said, those those behaviors that, you know, those emotions that you manipulate. Um, there's those times where you, you ask a question and they'll come back and say maybe they, you know, they, they, they give you a question that you act like, oh, my gosh, you just offended me. Like, what? And then you just stop. Right. And so it puts the ball in their park. Now they have to figure out what they want to say, because it might mean it. And that, that that I would use that because there might be something not going my way. Right. It's going down a different path than I want it to go. So I have to make them feel awkward. And I know that sounds weird, but making them feel awkward, they have to talk their way out of it, which then allows me the capability of quickly coming up where I want to go, what I want to say next. Because I need to find their reaction, right? I need to see are they are they questioning me because they don't know what I'm trying to say? Are they questioning me because they are really doing a good job in trying to prepare what you know what I'm doing to them? So yeah, that awkwardness or that that you know that awkward pause definitely helps. Do you have any tips or um, advice that you're able to to share with people about? Being able to investigate or find individuals, it seems when I do a lot of that uh, sort of stuff, it seems like a lot of the the information is behind um, like paid websites and some of those yeah. seem to be of various quality. Do you ever use um, open source tools for being able to, to track individuals? Oh, that's, that's my daily job. I mean, that's what I've been training for 20 years. And, um, you know, open source intelligence to me is just the dog's dog. I love it. And there's not a day that I wake up, I'm blessed. I'm, I am truly blessed because there's not a day I wake up and hate my job. And, you know, even though I might be working insurance fraud cases or I might be working, um, you know, for a fortune 500, let's say corporate investigation. Um, even though kind of the methods are the same, the job in and of itself is different. You know, the risk is different. Um, the chase is different, but those open sources, you know, one of the things that I talk about, and I think I talked about it in layer eight too, is I really push actionable intelligence. And, and the reason I do that, Patrick, is, is I'm going to use you. You're my suspect or you're the person of interest. Um, you know, you might be qualified a lot more so than your brother or your sister or your mom and dad on how to privatize your social media, right? You might have dropped your phone numbers. Maybe you're using VoIP numbers. Um, you know, you're skipping addresses or you're putting out, you know, propaganda. You know, you're putting out fake information. And so I don't want to concentrate on you. You know, you, I always say the suspect is your suspect, but your suspect isn't your primary. And the primary to me is actionable intelligence because you might have somebody, let's say I'm working with law enforcement. We have a uh, home uh, invasion suspect and he just went down that left road of life, right? Well, his entire family is still going on with their life and they're putting things out there, not realizing maybe that this guy's doing bad stuff. And um, so I really concentrate on the open source, uh, you know, preliminaries for me anyways, is, is creating that actionable intelligence. And you don't need you don't need those paid sites. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Paid what paid uh, data systems are phenomenal in the sense of easy and, and quick access. But the thing is that people also need to take into effect is that, um, you know, not every county uploads data to data systems. You know, if you live in a small county, like I grew up in a very small town and that town doesn't upload its information to the county. Right. So if I got a speeding ticket or if I got, 
um, you know, a curfew ticket, anything that would give me maybe even, you know, address information to try to correlate to the individual I'm looking at, that doesn't necessarily get to those data systems. Whereas you start looking at open source stuff, and most people who are in OSINT know true people and fast people, those quick sites, those a lot of times are primarily pulling information off of marketable data, right? It's that footprint that everybody leaves behind. You go to the grocery store, you fill that card out. Do you honestly think the grocery store cannot give you a discount unless you have the miraculous card? They sell our data. It's a billion dollar industry to sell our data. You know, same thing with sports authorities. You know, I always grind on the guys because they're like, oh, my wife's the one who does that. But they're at Cabela's, they're at sporting goods stores, right? And they're doing the same thing. And, you know, and here's the big difference on that is when you bring up the paid data systems, um, say you have somebody that we're trying to access information who's 18 years old. Well, if you run an 18 year old in those data systems, you normally don't get much of anything. You might get, you know, mom and dad's address, but you don't get a lot of other stuff. But let's say that 18 year old now is a daddy and he's got a, you know, a, a baby mama. Baby mama went to Walgreens. She filled out a card and, um, you know, because she, she's buying diapers and supplies. And now they have created that instantaneous data, that that footprint that they're leaving behind that a lot of times more so comes out in our um, open source investigations. I'm hoping that your answer to this tells people to not do it. Do you get a lot of information about people from the people around them, their friends and their family? Oh my gosh, yeah. And, um, you know, I think people are becoming more and more technologically based too. And, you know, but here's the thing I always say, let's put it like if I could put a pyramid, uh, a triangle in front of you right now, I always say, where's the weak link in a family type of pyramid, right? The weak link is normally gonna be the children because no matter what mom and dad says, the kids still do what they wanna do. And I have had so many parents that will come up to me and say, my kids don't have any social media. And, you know, God bless you. But um, they probably do. And, you know, and I, I busted my own boys and things. Right. And now we also have a second layer that becomes a weak link are the senior citizens. Um, you know, I have a lot of times they come up and they'll say, well, I don't know what this is. My granddaughter, or my grandson put this on my phone. Right. And it could be Snapchat. It could be Instagram. It could be Facebook. And now we have the elderly who don't understand technology. Right. So they don't know how to privatize anything. They don't know those privacy settings that take away their geolocation. Um, you know, like if they tweet and they leave their geolocation out there. So, you know, finding that that family information to me is always important, especially when it comes to social media. And, you know, I always look in, especially, let's say, true people. And I don't really care about all the addresses and phone numbers and everything they give me. Obviously, I'm going to utilize them. But I go down to the family and I go down to the associates and I look for the weirdest name I could find. And I look for their social media to tie me back in, especially if you have a common name. If I have somebody I'm tracing, his name's Patrick Johnson, that's going to be you know, more difficult. And so I'm going to look at your family history. And I'm going to try to find that it could be the ex-spouse, the second ex-spouse of, you know, a former brother-in-law. It doesn't matter because just for me, I'm divorced. I've been divorced for 15 years, but I'm still friends with my ex-husband's family. I'm not with him, but I am with his family. So by looking at his family, they're not even my family family, right? Blood. But you would find me going through them. 
So that's what I always say is, you know, look for that weird name, that really uncommon spelt name and start looking through their information. Now, Facebook and I think and, and, and I think a lot of people probably have noticed this is um, a lot of people are turning off the ability to see their friends. Right. And so then it's that old fashioned click and look at a photograph. See who's making comments. It, it really depends too, areas, age. Um, you know, um, but there's a whole a litany of things that changes, you know, the way that we're going to look at something. A lot of people use nicknames, right? Uh, sometimes you're looking at Facebook and there'll be 15 people and nobody's using their real name, but they're using Bubblicious or they're using all these things. So then you have to start looking again and trying to compare comments, you know, hey, you know, hey, cuz, hey, brother, hey, sister. And, you know, and it, they're not using their real name. So it's all of that. But social media to me is incredibly important. And I think it is to anybody who does OSINT. One thing that stuck out for me there was how you mentioned that you might look for somebody that has an uncommon name or some other interesting little technique or tidbit that might have stuck out to you. Is there anything in your, your history, your experience that has been that one little thing that was the, the tip of the iceberg or enough to really get you over the top? And then when you looked back at it, it was like, that's really interesting that it was that one little thing that I found that was the, the key to the whole investigation. Oh gosh, there's actually two. One of them, this one was actually a really tough case, I got to admit. And um, it was a individual and um, the, you know, he was a fugitive. Uh, he was a tax attorney. He'd done a lot of embezzlement and um, he was smart. He was a very, very smart man. And uh, they had vacated where they lived. Um, you know, there was no forwarding addresses, uh, you know, no family members supposedly knew who he were, where he was. And, you know, he did. He cut off a lot of his family. He was looking at many, many years in prison. Um, so he was doing a really good job in covering his tracks. And this was really right around when social media started becoming popular, like Facebook, let's say probably around 2009, 2010, you know, around that era. Right. And um, and I did all my tricks, you know, I did my pretexting, I did my my research, I did everything. And there was little trails and, and the person who wasn't leaving the trails wasn't him. It was his wife. And because I don't think she wanted to be on the run, you know, and I don't think she realized in how much trouble he really was. He probably didn't have that conversation like, hey, honey, I'm a fugitive. Let's go. And, um, but she was also groomed enough by him, um, that she was very careful, but there was one thing after all of my digging and it was unbelievably, it was a magazine. And, um, one of the neighbors, uh, had said that they had checked their mailbox form for a while. And, and this is like, like I said, I'd spent probably a couple months by now chasing leads and running things down. And I finally got a hold of a neighbor. And he goes, you know, it was really weird. Um, there was a magazine for somebody else and I, you know, in their mailbox. And, you know, he had permission to check their mail. It was right after they had left. But I hadn't talked to the neighbors because I was trying to stay away from that in the very beginning. I was actually asked to stay away from that. And so he gave me uh, a last name that he thought was associated to the magazine. And I ended up start chasing that. Well, what it was, was it was a piece of her middle name. So she had used a last name as part of her middle name. So let's say Elizabeth, right? 
But instead of using Liz or Beth or something, let's say, you know, Eliza, right? Something, something weird like that. So I started chasing that down. And, you know, it's been a few years ago, but that's in and of, in of itself how I ended up finding her, not him. And I, I didn't know for sure, Patrick, if I had her, to be honest. And I called and remember I told you there's, there's um, emotions to manipulate. So I was going to go after greed and curiosity with her um, because a lot, she had a very big credit card at one time. She just, she shopped a lot, right? So I knew she had that type of behavior. So when I went in to talk to her and not knowing for sure if I had her, I went in acting like, you know, I was trying to get a package to her. It looked like it was insured, um, but we had a different name and I gave her a real name. Right. And she paused. And I remember I told you the pause is a telling thing. And that means they're thinking. And that's why I don't like to pause in, in pretexting. And so she paused and I said, you know what? I totally understand. I'm so sorry, you know, that I bothered you. I'm just like, I, at the end of my rope, um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and send this box back. And she goes, okay, okay, okay. Um, just don't tell my husband, but that's me. And boom, I knew where they were. And it was, like I said, chasing those leads down, um, getting people to look at things for me. And finally going after that, you know, hey, I have something that looks like it's worth a lot of money. And she immediately paused. And once she paused, I knew I had her. I just knew. And so then she came clean. And, you know, so those are, you know, those those things that you just got to keep digging. Um, and I would say a second one was, believe us or not, I was looking for a clown. This young lady, um, she was in her mid 30s. Uh, she wanted to find this clown. Uh, when she was six years old and he had come to her birthday party and her dad was a very abusive man and she ended up telling this clown uh, that her dad was assaulting her you know molesting her and um, the clown ended up going to the police and and just pretty much saving this little girl's life so here it is all these years later and she wanted me to figure out who who this clown was and I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to do that? You know, she didn't even have a, a, the name of the clown. Um, but her mom remembered um, kind of a, a piece of the name of the company. So, again, it's just, you know, research, historical research. But um, after I, I kind of limited it down to who I thought it might be, and unfortunately, this guy had a common name. And so I, I must have gone through 100 people for this, this young lady. And um, I finally talked this little kid down the block to ride his bike. Um, his mom knew, so his mom was in the conversation. But this little boy rode the, his bike down the street, knocked on this door, and asked this man who didn't have a phone um, if he was ever a clown. And that's how I ended up finding this guy. But again, I didn't say why I was looking for him. It was just this whole storytelling thing. But yeah, it's you know, it's the chase. It's that fun. I, I love it. I think that's really great because I think so many times when people are doing investigations, they find these little pieces of information that they think have no value. But it, it's great to hear your stories where you are able to find that one little thing that was what put you over the top. Yeah, and it is. And it's one of those things. And I mean, and I'm sure the people who are going to listen to this, they've had that experience. And sometimes you see it in the beginning. You don't realize it was important. And, you know, later on, all of a sudden the, you know, the little light bulb goes off and you're like, crap, where did I see that? 
you know, which link was it after you've gone through a hundred tabs and, you know, and then it just goes off. So, you know, there's those times that, you know, you forget where it is and then you got to restart the whole entire investigation. Have you ever had somebody that you were chasing that whether you were successful in finding them or not, that you had a lot of respect for in terms of that they were just extremely difficult to find and what sorts of things make somebody really difficult to find or to catch? Well, that lawyer, like I just told you, that that guy really knew what he was doing. He left no footprint. It was the footprint of his wife that I ended up finding. But um, yeah, I mean, it seems like my, I think the, the problem that I have sometimes that somebody who's listening might have a better um, skill set than me on this is sometimes foreign names. And those become very difficult, especially if they're common foreign names. Um, you know, some of the Asian names, how they'll transpose their last name to their first name, you know, something like that. Um, and, and those become very difficult uh, to me sometimes. And but, you know, I was chasing one individual and it was it was a, a foreign uh, individual. And I had problems because I couldn't read the language. Right. So I was trying to transcribe the language and, and going it over to Google and then trying to get, you know, it, it given into the English version. The English version isn't always right. You know, it's kind of like my mom was from Europe. And when my mom spoke, um, she spoke six languages. And but when she would try to tell us what she was saying in English, it wasn't the same. You know, the 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 meaning was different. The words were different. And so those to me are more difficult. They really, truly are. And and I think I have accents down a little bit better to understand because of my mom. But when you're actually chasing the uh, OSINT down, that becomes, I think, sometimes more difficult for me is, is that, you know, that gap in understanding. Because and here's an example. My mom, my mom was the cutest little butterball ever. I swear she was just that she was a little angel on earth. And um, she didn't really know how to speak English when she came over. And it was after World War II. My dad was um, uh, in the Air Force. Um, it was several years after World War II. And, but when she came over, she brought a German dictionary, uh, German-English dictionary with her. And so she was very uh, literal with her words, right? So in the American language, we have a lot of uh, slang words. And that was very difficult for my mom to learn. And so when I was growing up, um, and, and this just happened to me the other day, and I had to apologize, um, the word gay um, obviously has a different you know, meaning to a lot of people today. For my mom, when we were growing up, gay meant silly, because that's what the dictionary said, right? And so my mom would have literal, literal words like that. And um, so I, you know, I, I learned a lot by obviously having my mom, but in that same sense, that's what I think I have problems with in a, as an investigator is looking at that ability of trying to figure out what they're trying to say. What are your boundaries when doing an investigation? Is there anything that's out of bounds for you? What is something that's like too far for you to go? Or do you have your own ethical boundaries when you're doing an investigation? Oh, my gosh. It's so funny you asked. I just sat in an ethical class and we talked about this. Um, I think the boundary comes by the case. Um, you know, a lot of times my boundaries are kids and, um, you know, I don't like the manipulation of children. And um, but in that same sense, uh, you know, if you have an eight year old child that is, you know, be, was murdered by, you know, a nine, 10, 11 year old child, that boundary has to change. You know what I mean? So the boundary is specific to the case you're working. 
obviously I will never do anything that crosses me into the line that will put me in jail. Um, you know, I, I really honestly would not do well. Um, but I also, you know, I believe in God and I want to, I want to earn my wings. So there's never that day in heaven where, you know, my life comes in front of the screen and there's a, you know, a hesitation of why I should be there. So I do have my moral and my ethical boundaries that, you know, I live by those codes, but it honestly depends on the case. I think anybody will say, I would never do that, but I'll tell you something. You hurt my kids. My boundaries move a lot. You go after somebody that I care about. Those boundaries are going to be different. So that's what I would say as, a, as an answer to that. If somebody's interested in your service, do you have training sessions that the public can attend or webinars that the public can attend? Do you offer those? I do. Um, I'm actually getting my webinars put together. I'll have a training platform out hopefully here in the next uh, couple months. Um, you know, my trainings before COVID 2020 was I would do about 80 to 100 uh, trainings a year. And I was on the road over 200 days a year easily for the past four or five years. So a lot of my trainings were brought in by corporations, associations, just like layer eight, right? These type of conferences, um, which I'm super excited for again. I can't wait. But it, for if you want private training, all you have to do is reach out to me. If I get enough people and as I'm doing all this other stuff where I'm recording, I have no problem. I mean, this to me is easy. I love it. I can talk your ear off of it. Um, I think I put it in very easy terms for people to learn it. Uh, I don't go too technical. There's a lot of people that have technical abilities way beyond me um, that can do the technical stuff. Mine is just the street art of OSINT. And so they could reach out to me at JAG, so JAG Investigations. My website sucks. If anybody is a web developer, let me know. I've never used my website. I call it my civilian site. If anybody contacts me, I know they're civilians. And I, I didn't used to do a lot of civilian work, but Michelle with one L, that's the big thing. People spell my name wrong a lot. So Michelle with one L at jaginvestigations.com and uh, reach out. I'm more than happy to talk your ear off and share a lot of stuff. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to share that you came in thinking, I want to tell this on the podcast? My big thing is be kind. I see a lot of people talking, you know, over the different social media, especially Twitter. You have somebody who asks you a question. Don't ever make them feel stupid. You know, we were all there. You know, I just saw one yesterday and uh, I wanted to get up there and just say enough, you know, just stop. And it was a young lady. She's like right out of high school. And she's like, you know, I've been following you guys and I'm really interested. And people just start tearing her up. And uh, so be kind. There's many different people out there that are interested in what we're doing. Um, there's many different ways of us teaching people. And, you know, when we're teaching them, make sure that they understand the ethical parts of the use of this. So be kind. Thank you for listening to the Layer 8 podcast. You can find out more information about us at layer8conference.com and find more podcast episodes on many of your favorite platforms. We hope you enjoy these episodes as much as we enjoyed making.